Welcome to Chuck Shoe Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. I've got a great guest for you today, Anthony Quarter, the singer of Tora Tora. I actually interviewed the guitarist from Tora Tora, Keith Douglas. Uh, that was actually one of my first episodes of this show. So you can check that out if you're a big Tora Tora fan. If you don't know who Tora Tora is, um, well, you'll definitely learn from either listening to that other episode or this one. But they were a pretty big band back in the late 80s, early 90s. They had like five videos on MTV. They had a song on the Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure soundtrack. Uh, they toured with L.A. Guns, Dangerous Toys, The Cult, Warrant, uh, Kicks, all sorts of other bands, too. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, later in the mid-90s, when they the band started to decline and the grunge kind of took over, they had actually had Alice in Chains open up for them. They had hung out with Soundgarden and Chris Cornell, and so... You know, it's just the way the rock scene kind of changed. But Anthony's a great guy. Uh, you'll hear a lot about the history of the band and uh, his life. His life kind of took an interesting turn after the band kind of ended. He became a teacher, started doing other stuff, worked at a record label. Um, but then the band is actually back together as of about 12 years ago. And they've actually put out a new album, Bastards of Beale, and as well as a, a new un- unplugged EP acoustic it's like five songs so check both of those out and i hope you enjoy this interview with anthony quarter hello anthony hey chuck how's it going good how are you doing man i'm doing great i'm happy to talk to you yeah thanks for calling me i'm I'm glad that we're able to reschedule um man gosh thank you so much we had just the most unexpected news uh last week uh, a really close friend of mine a promoter in memphis passed away and it was just we were the same age we grew up together i started playing and he started promoting about the same time and it was just oh wow i'm so sorry to hear that crazy so it was unexpected it was really unexpected i mean we just we've done so many shows together and he created so many opportunities for the band just you know he was um had a two uh, venues, two sheds, one in northern Mississippi, right across the line from Memphis, and then one over in Arkansas. And if he ever got wind of something that was coming along that was in our, you know, wheelhouse, he would say, "Hey, you want to come down?" And you know, we had kind of pulled back and we're only doing a few shows, you know, while we're raising our families and stuff. Yeah. But he would be, "This is going to be a good one," you know, it's oh. like a Leonard Skinner show or a White Snake or you know, Brett Michaels or whatever. He'd be like, "Hey, you want to come jump on this for?" come make some good money and jump out in front of a big audience. And he was just really great. So it sounds and like plus, he was an advocate for your band then. Oh yeah. He was an advocate and he was, he was just outside of just the music industry. We became, you know, uh, really close friends just as we were growing old. Mm-hmm. You know, we had some really long talks. He was a really big resource to me as far as, um, you know, I, I moved to Nashville and worked for the record labels, worked in music publishing, worked at, as a teacher, like at Belmont University, and now I'm over at SAE Institute as their entertainment business program chair. So he was somebody I could call on, you know, if I had a question or if I wanted uh, him to chime in on some topic I was talking about at school or something. Mm. Uh, and so he always offered himself up, you know. And uh, But listen, man, he, he had a wonderful life, and it, hmm. the celebration of his life the other day was the craziest thing I've ever seen. Hmm. It was like I have a movie, man. They did a, they had a full production where they had people running sound and coming out and setting mics up. Wow. They, he, he came in in a road case, like, you know, <laughs> down the aisle. And 
<laughs> the pall, well, the that's pall cool. bearers came in and they brought the things that he would have in his office. So his hat, oh. they brought a baseball bat, they brought a little thing of Cokes and a little uh, pint of whiskey. And his, his saying was, I never enter a crowded room if I ain't making a dollar. So everybody walked up there, left a couple of bucks on top of his, his, uh, um, case. Mm. And, uh, it was just crazy. Hmm. It was just, it was crazy, but I, it meant the world to me that they thought of me to speak. His, yeah. I think his family was just so distraught, his, yeah. his, his wife and he had two brothers and, and, um, I have another friend that's a booking agent and he, he called me together and he just said, man, they just won't be able to hold it together. We just was wondering if you might want to say a few words. And I was like, oh, are you kidding? I'd go ahead and do that. So, was, so he worked uh, with not hard. just your band, but other, other bands as well. Yeah. He was a, a promoter in Memphis. He grew up uh, in Northern Mississippi. He started out um, down at Ole Miss, which is about maybe an hour outside of Memphis. And he worked with a bunch of people, but, he was kind of growing up. He was my age, but he started really getting in promoting stuff around the time, like Dave Matthews and people like that were breaking. Oh, he had done some okay. shows and stuff with them. Um, but we still, we our careers kind of ran parallel, so we kept bumping into each other all the time and just through different people. And, you know, he made trips up here to Nashville to, you know, meet with people and talk to record labels and all that kind of stuff. So I would wow. see him, you know, from time to time and get to spend time together up here and then down in down in Memphis. So, spent you, a lot of time there. so you had that to deal with and then obviously the coronavirus is happening and then there was also a hurricane in Nashville right before the coronavirus right. happened. A, I think a lot of people forgot about that. So you, you've had a lot to yeah. deal with over the last few months then. Yeah, it was a tornado and uh, it hit some it hit some big areas and uh uh, you know, the people here were just uh, trying to recover from that. And then all of a sudden mm-hmm. it was like, uh, we're going to close everything for a minute, make sure everybody's healthy and safe. And yeah. So they have, have they started the rebuild down there at all? Or has that been put they off? They did. Okay. It, it hit, mainly hit uh, East Nashville, which is kind of like a real creative um, part of town. A lot of musicians and people kind of live in that area. It's a lot of music. It's kind of like a... Um, Midtown area, older homes, mm-hmm. kind of area that have stoops and things like that. And uh, so they're they're on the mend over there. It was a lot of rebuilding, but you know Nashville always comes together. That's one thing great about the community: mm-hmm. people come together and help each other. And I've been up here about fifteen years, so yeah, I, I can't believe I'm saying that, but <laughs> it's just been an amazing experience. It's a lot of a lot of creative people. I've met a lot of different people in different areas of the entertainment industry. It's got, I guess, infrastructure, you know, is what it is. Sure. It's got a lot of managers and publishing companies and um, the performing rights organizations and all that. So, right. But you actually grew awesome. up and in, yeah, you actually grew up in Memphis, right? I mean, that, and that's where the band was formed. Yeah, we all, we went to high school together. Mm-hmm. So Patrick and I, the bass player and I went to the same high school and then Keith and John went to the same high school and actually, Patrick and Keith have known each other since they were eight or ten years old. So they've right, known they, each other. There, yeah, they had another band, Lycanthrope, that was kind of like a Judas Priest, yeah. Iron Maiden thing or something. Man, you've done your homework. They did. Yeah, they did do that. And that was before I knew them. So um, it was kind of like a double two guitars, 
they were big fans of like Judas Priest and Iron Maiden. Uh, Keith's a huge Randy Rhodes fan. That was kind of like his oh. inspiration when he was growing up. Great guitar player. And um, and of course, we loved all the classic stuff, the Zeppelins and Bad Companies and Cheap Trick and all those kind of people. And uh, But yeah, man, I was pretty intimidated needing them uh, because I was a couple of years younger than them. And mm-hmm. so they were out of school. I was like in a, going into 11th grade, I think. And um, I had kind of been knocking around with a couple of um, kind of neighborhood bands. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a friend that was tearing the strings off his guitar. And I met him, and my family was real musical growing up. And so I kind of just thought everybody was into music. So when I met yeah. him, I was like, oh, man, this is cool. We, we kind of found a bond, you know. And, uh, but he was listening to a bunch of stuff, a bunch of Rat and Dokken and Bon Jovi, and he was in there doing the shredding licks and stuff on his guitar. And we kind of started putting something together. And, uh, he kind of had a, a small drum kit. It was like a snare hi hat, bass drum cymbal, I think is what it was. But anyway, and I was kind of knocking around that. And he goes, man, we really need, we want to write our own songs. We need somebody to sing. And so I said, well, man, I'll just start singing over the drums, you know? And we started writing. And then the next thing I need, we had kind of played a, played a little bit out, you know, for some little parties, house parties and stuff. And Patrick just had heard about me. I think we might have had done something at school or something. And he just approached me and said, hey, we're getting ready to put the uh, band together and was wondering if you want to come audition. And this was funny, man. This is like straight out of a movie. We were like at the mall or something. And he came up to me and had bumped into me. And... uh I was like, yeah, I want to go. And then after I said, yeah, I was excited when I said yes. And then I started getting really nervous. I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> what did I just do? I don't know anything or <laughs> anybody. And But anyway, I went over there, and they were, like, set up at Patrick's house in his living room. And John had rototoms. You know, he had a huge set of drums. And yeah. Keith had two amps set up in the room in wow. stereo. And they were doing, like, 2112, like, dun, 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 dun. And it bounced back and forth between the amps you know and everything he had all set up with his so was, so yeah was, yeah okay yeah wow and uh we were just totally you know i was blown away i was like um they're on like a different level than i am <laughs> I, I showed up with an acoustic you know my family was real acoustic oriented and right they, they played all, all your mom, kind of uh your mom was musical she played the piano and sang right is that yes man Her, she did my aunt and uncle played guitar and my aunt sang they all kind of did like this uh family harmony stuff going mm-hmm. on. It's just kind of, I don't even know how to describe it, but I but, thought everybody's yeah. family did this. Oh. I didn't realize that it, for as far back as I can remember, yeah. listen to, you know, Mississippi John Hurt records and we listen to Ray Charles and they listen to gospel music and rock and roll. They listen to, you know, Skinner and Foreigner in Boston and James Taylor and Neil Young, all these people they were turning me on to. And I thought everybody's family was doing that. So when I, my friends would come over they would just freak. My aunt's one of the best singers I've ever heard in my life. And, but I was like, oh man, they do that all the time. Let's, let's sneak off and go smoke a cigarette or something, you know? And, you know, when you're a little kid and then as I got older, I started realizing, I was like, Hey man, this actually isn't the norm. Like, this is like something really unique. And it really made me realize how much of an influence and an impact on my life that they had, uh, Mm -hmm. just from inspiring me, you know? Right about music and turning me on to just the love of it and everything. Um, and so anyway, I had shown up over at their house with like an acoustic, you know, for the tour tour thing. And I was like, man, I'm going to, 
play like Desperado or something from the Eagles, you know, and do my singer-songwriter thing. And I don't know, I played like half of it or something. And Keith and them go, man, that's cool, but you know Toys and Addicts. Or I Want You to Want Me or, you know, Can't Get Enough Your Love. And they started just naming off. I don't know, they had 10 or 12. I think they did Walk This Way and something mm-hmm. else. And I didn't know all the words. I mean, I knew the songs, but I was like, oh, I think I can. And Toys and Attic, I was like, man, I don't know what he's saying. You know, I mean, back then we had to like listen to the record and try to figure it out. Uh, they didn't have the lyrics. You know what I mean? Yeah. I didn't have any crap or any, and they just kind of put me on the spot. But as soon as we all started playing and singing together, we were like, man, there's some kind of chemistry or something that was did there you, where we said, man, this yeah. is kind of cool. Did you beat out other singers? So did they have other singers that they auditioned or? I don't, they never told me. I don't, okay. I don't know. Hmm. I think when we did it, I think that was, I don't know who had been there or if they had talked to other people, but I think we went like straight into, you know, let's throw a party. <laughs> yeah. So then, yeah, then you, you guys originally called right. yourselves free beer, right? But then you picked a uh, Tora yeah. Tora off a list of like 60 or 70 names. Um, and yeah. then, uh, you know, I heard this story. I think I talked to Keith when I interviewed him about um, how his dad owned like a glue factory and you guys basically set up a, like a club in the factory with the barrels and you had a PA system and you, sh- you even showcased for the record labels there and you had uh, old Miss football players running security. Um, now, I also yeah. heard you had like kind of like a VIP section. Did you have any VIPs man. that came in to these shows? Oh, man. Yeah, we had great times. It was just. I, I we weren't thinking of it at the time, but we were very entrepreneurial yeah, thinkers. For now, sure. Keith, Keith really was the guitar player. He's he was uh he was business savvy. You know, he he thought about it. There was actually two of those factories. One one was outside of town that was kind of closer to our area where we were living that we used to rehearse at when we very first started. That's when we were playing the old, you know cover songs and all that kind of stuff. We mm-hmm. were just kind of getting to know each other and I was screaming in a microphone trying to you know figure out what I was doing. But as we got a little more savvy and stuff, Keith's dad had a, uh, a space he was renting and it was a big empty warehouse that was in the middle of town. It was right next to the Mid-South Coliseum where all the concerts would happen. And I mean, Keith and them saw everybody, Van Halen, ACDC, all, all those concerts, their first concerts they saw at this building. And we could see it, you know, when you stand out of the front of the our warehouse you could look at it but um his dad was using that for a storage space for these 55 gallon drums and so keith asked if we could move from the place the actual workplace physical workplace to over to that storage place and his dad was like yeah you can you know go over there i'll give you a key and he was a real he was really instrumental in us becoming successful his dad invested in us Mm. you know helped us get the gear and stuff Mm. at the very beginning Cause he just knew that it was something that we wanted to do together. Yeah. And he kind of was keeping a, 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 some kind of tab on what we were up to. But uh, when we moved in there, all those barrels were kind of spaced out around in there. And, and we got to look around and Keith goes, man, let's push all these things to one end of this place. And we threw some plywood on top of it and hung some black, like garbage bag material off the front. And all of a sudden we had like a stage. It was, you know, a awesome. 55 gallon drum turned up on the side and we were high enough up in the air and we threw the PA on there. And we built like these tour tour letters that were kind of out of two by fours that kind of looked like the kiss letters and covered them in glitter. We glued glitter to them. And at the time we weren't thinking, man, if those things would have ever fallen, they would have 
taking somebody out. <laughs> I mean, they were so heavy. But at the time, we were so excited. We are like, hang them up in the ceiling, you know, or whatever. It's going to look awesome. Oh. And uh, I don't even know how we secured them or anything. But anyway, we threw these crazy parties, man. We, we became friends with, um, there was a DJ at the time in Memphis. His name was Malcolm Riker. And he did a locals only show. And he did it on Friday nights. And it was like this coveted spot that you, everybody, all the, the scene in Memphis at the time was insane. It was crazy. It was a bunch of young kids. We were all kind of about the same age. And everybody was playing music, man. I guess it had kind of overflowed out of the West Coast. Like everybody was listening huh. and watching and hearing about, you know, music and what was going on with the scene out there and how they had a strip. And Bill Street's like a real, you know, touristy part of Memphis um, with a bunch of clubs and all that kind of stuff on it. And there was one guy that was in town, a guy named Mike Glenn. He had a theater that would hold about a thousand people. And the, he teamed up with the radio station and they used to do this. Tuesday night uh, jam. It was a sponsor by a music store, and they put a bunch of a back line on stage, a bunch of equipment and stuff, and you could jump on stage and play three songs or 15 minutes. And if you went over 15 minutes, they unplugged you or just pulled you off stage or whatever. Jeez. And so all the kids, that was an all-ages event. They would advertise it on the radio, talk to people, and they, it was a place where underage kids could go and see music, because most of the other stuff was bars, and we were all high school kids. You couldn't really get in unless you snuck in somewhere or something. And so those two guys kind of helped get that oh. scene going. So how many people uh, show up other... for these these concerts in the warehouse? Man, I don't know. I would guess between three and 400 people probably. <laughs> wow. It was nuts. Listen, it would, get, it would get to capacity. Uh, and we would open the door once we filled the whole building up and people had paid to come in, we would open the bay door of the warehouse and people would just sit in the parking lot on their cars, like oh. the hoods of their cars. They were throwing Frisbees. They brought lawn chairs. Oh. They ordered pizzas. So I mean, people awesome. were just out there. Just, it was, Did when you I make think a lot of money now, off of that? I mean, three or 400, even if you charge five bucks a head, I mean, that's a pretty big chunk of change. We did make money. We would, we would pay the, the uh, bouncer guys, and then we would always, the next day, we would throw some kind of cookout. Like, we'd make enough to, like, cook food for everybody, and, you know, I don't think we were, like, going to the bank or anything, but <laughs> we would just, we spent a lot, and we, you know, we made a lot, but we spent a lot putting the shows on, trying to advertise and things like that, and, uh, but it was really fun because it was super organic. Like, it yeah. gave the kids a place to go that weren't old enough to go see music, and it was in our practice room, so it was kind of our we got to be the master of ceremonies or mm -hmm. whatever and get up and just tell everybody, you know, do anything you want to, just don't get hurt. Did you know, you have, nobody can. Did you have other bands hurt. open for you or anything? Or we only did one time. We did a Halloween one, the very first thing we did. And we did it with another band and it was awesome. It was killer. But every time after that, we just did the whole night or so. Wow. Like, we want to just party and hang out and then we'll jump up and play when we want to. And, and so then kind yeah. of a, and then you guys, you ended up winning a battle of the bands and that's how you got the studio time, right? And then you, is that where you recorded a yeah. demo? Yeah, we started, well, we were working on the demo when we won the competition. We had we okay. started out, there was a guy named uh, Steve Howe. He had a place called uh, Powerhouse Studios, uh, a studio behind his house. And he was the first engineer producer that we'd ever worked with. And he was the guy that kind of brought us in and said, you guys got to get your groove. 
And we were like, what are you talking about? He goes, well, it sounds like everybody in here is doing a solo. You know, mm-hmm. you got to huh. match match the bass drum and the bass together. And, let's, you know, he started sitting us down, just giving us the fundamentals of music. We didn't know. We all played by ear. And we just jumped in and started writing our own songs. We were kind of butchering the cover songs. So we said, man, let's just write our own. And then people won't know if we're playing them good or bad or whatever. We can just <laughs> do it how we want to. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, it was just so fun, but he did. He was a real like teacher kind of guy. He took he took his time with us, and we started cutting a few songs with him. And then we won that battle of bands, and we got an opportunity to go into Ardent Studios, which is I don't know if your listeners know about Ardent Studios, but if you don't know it, it's A R D E N T Ardent Studios in Memphis. It's really famous. There was a guy named John Fry that started the studio, and he became kind of a father figure in our band. Uh, we met him because there was an engineer, Paul Eversoll. We won the, the recording time, and Paul was a, close to our age, and he just happened to be the guy that was on uh, on the clock the day that we were coming in the studio, and we met him, and we started working on some songs with him, and he ended up approaching us after he worked with us on some recording sessions and said, hey, man, I would like to introduce y'all to the owner of the studio. Would y'all consider maybe doing a production deal with us so we can do some recordings with you and maybe shop you. And so through knowing Paul, he introduced us to John and, and John was really famous for working on, I don't know if you know this band, Big Star. Have you ever heard of them? No. Okay. So you need to look them up. Um, They were kind of a uh, critical success. They were signed to Stax Records out of Memphis. So for your listeners that don't know that, that was all the soul music that came out. Otis Redding, Carla Thomas, Rufus Thomas, Isaac Hayes, all those people. And I mean, it was one of the biggest um, businesses in the United States. It was Stacks and Motown were kind of battling it out in the soul category. And it was a black owned and operated company, which was amazing. And they were hiring all these people out of Memphis and created a ton of jobs. And, uh, but anyway, John was, was John Fry had started a studio in his, uh, at his family home. And he ended up moving it into Midtown Memphis. Uh, he started it when he was 14, when he was in high school. And uh, But when he was older, like 20, he moved out to this place. I think he was 20. I'm not sure. Um, but what he did, he was so smart. He bought the equipment, the same recording equipment that was in stacks. He had the, the same board and all that. And so his equipment and his tape machines, and they matched. So stacks was so successful, he got the overflow. Hmm. Their, their oh, studios okay. would get busy and he would gather and what was really awesome that we weren't thinking about at the time is through that uh cross pollinization kind of thing the the producers and stuff were coming over to his studio and they were teaching these other engineers the miking techniques the oh. equipment they were using so he really educated the engineers and stuff that were working with and they were all young he was they were learning from you know different older guys that had experience and stuff so it was really cool and john was always about uh, educating yourself. He was all about technology because, I mean, when they came along, if they didn't have something, they had to build it. You know, they'd have to go and sure. solder the wires together and come up with the stuff. And and he was always about following what you were passionate about because he had done it when he was young. So he kind of related to us on a couple of different levels. And he just came across the father figure because he had been through the waves a little bit more than us. And uh, But he did introduced us to all the record labels they paid for the demos oh. and we we cut four songs and then 
we ended up inviting those people to see a showcase. And one of the showcases was in our jam room. So they came in, they went up, we had this bar, we built it ourselves upstairs, which was hilarious. But we put them in the building before anybody else was let in. Mm. And so uh, nobody really paid attention to them being there. So they organically got to just stand there and watch, like, this is what's going on with this scene or whatever. Yeah, and how people were reacting to your band. They came in, people rolled in coolers, they came in with their lawn chairs, we had ash, you know, big uh, sand, five-gallon buckets full of sand for people to smoke and put their cigarettes in and all that kind of stuff to make sure we didn't burn the building down. But <laughs> they were uh, they were there to just watch and, and just take it in. And then we, put, we performed, you know, a set while they were there. And we ended up, we got six offers. And... It was so exciting. Wow. And there was this guy named Brian Huttenhauer who worked for A&M Records. And of all the people that were there that night, um, the, the thing about being at the warehouse was um, whenever the party was over and people were leaving and all that kind of stuff, we would take one of those drums that was in the building and stick it in the back of a pickup truck. And we'd have to ride the parking lot and get all the glass and bottles and pizza boxes and clean it up because you know at daylight big 18 wheeler rigs would start oh, coming in and load yeah. out, out of the other out of the other uh bay doors so we had to make sure so we didn't get in trouble for right because it's uh, still a warehouse working warehouse at the, the, the yeah time. yeah so then you got and that so, recording contract and then or yeah you got the recording contract and then you re- ended up recording your first album at that same studio ardent studios and you kind of said it was almost like going to call, it was like your college cause your college age and you're kind of, you're learning a ton. Um, but t- talk about the recording that first album. Cause I, you said that you saw like Stevie Ray Vaughan once and REM was there a lot. And Keith Richards was doing a solo album at the time. Yeah. Yeah. It was crazy. Well, what I was telling you is they, the guy from A&M, he stayed at our warehouse that night. We showcased, okay. he rode around in the back, back of the truck with us. And so, so we ended up, they were talking to us about the offers that we got. And we said, Hey, we really like the guy from A&M. He was the most genuine dude. He stuck around and hung out and talked to us. And he was just a chill dude, you know? Yeah. But anyway, so yeah. So the next thing we know, we said, man, we want to work with A&M. And, uh, it was just such a crazy learning experience, man. We had never been in that situation. We were green. We were still trying to figure out our instruments and our, you know, my vocals and all that kind of stuff. And going in the studio was so exciting. We were working with Paul Eversole. Uh, he went on to work with like Three Doors Down and a bunch of other people. But now, do you get to pick the producer at that point in the, in the studio and stuff, or you make suggestions, or how does that? Because like that's a pretty amazing. They let you record in Arden. They didn't make you go to L.A. or New York or something, right? That was part of our production deal. Is okay. that we would record in in Memphis? Is that he wanted us to do the record there? And as far as Paul, he was kind of our introduction into Arden. Like he had done those first sessions with us. We were comfortable with him, you know, and it's, you know, you're, you spend like 16 or 18 hours a day with somebody hanging around talking and stuff. You kind of get to know him. It's more of a, you know, he was more like a a band member, you know, and and family member after hanging around with him for so long. Cause we did tons of rehearsals and pre-production before we went in because we wanted to have it right when we got in the studio. And then the actual process of recording, you know, of getting the drum sounds and, you know, getting the headphones fixed the way you want it, where it's all dialed in, where we got mm-hmm. everything just like we like it. So he was super patient, but 
Paul was one of the producers on the record, and then the, the co-producer was a guy named Joe Hardy, who had done all the ZZ Top records, like the She's Got Legs and mm. After Afterburner and all that kind of stuff. And so he was a more kind of seasoned producer, and it had a bunch of success. So when he came on board, it gave us a lot of credibility within the industry. People took notice because they said, hey, Joe's working on something new. Uh, there's some young little group of people he's found in Memphis that he's working with. So between him and Paul, um, they were just amazing. And when I, we said it was like going to college, it really was. Like yeah. we, They went through the processes with us. They talked to us about all the different kind of microphones, and we tried all kind of different amps. And, I mean, it was just we really started learning about Did the you, craft. Yeah, and you said being in the studio. 16 hours a day? Yeah, it would just depend <laughs> on, you know, at the wow. very beginning – it was a little bit sparse. We would go in we kind of cut uh, songs like they did demo sessions in Nashville. We go in with a batch of maybe five or six songs and record those. And then we say, okay, what's the best one out of this batch? And we'd say, okay, there's the bar. That's the best one we've got out of this one. Put the rest of them on the back burner. We got to beat this one. Let's go yeah. write a whole nother batch of songs. And we'd go in. And a lot of times they were really nice to us to let us go in. Maybe we would go in on an overnight session or something where we could go in, we'd go rehearse all day and something and then go set up with one of the night guys in the middle of the night and just get some sounds up where we could hear it. And we'd run the tracks and stuff in the studio. And, you know, we had some access that we may have not had if we were doing it at a regular studio, which was kind of nice. And uh, so, man, we just worked. We wrote, we probably wrote 60 or 70 songs for that first record. Wow. And, it was just awesome. It was so fun. We were trying a bunch of different styles and singing, you know, melodies and ideas. And uh, it was just so fun. We we yeah. loved it. And and for us, the the producers really did such a great job on the record. We couldn't believe it when we heard the mixes and stuff that they did. We just went, "Oh my god, this is amazing!" You know? Yeah. How did they? That's not us. How did they do that? <laughs> no, and I love <laughs> the first single off that album, "Walking Shoes." That's how I found you guys. Um, and then I oh, yeah. later did a deep dive and got, you know, more familiar with your catalog. Uh, but that song, you know, kind of catapulted the band on rock radio and MTV. And then you guys got to go on Headbangers Ball, which I, I was a big fan of. And I guess if originally it was Adam Curry was the host of that. And then later Ricky Rockman. Gosh. But um, so what was it, it was like so seeing crazy. your, yeah, seeing your videos on MTV and then being able to go into MTV after watching that show? Man, I'm telling you, there was like a couple of things that happened during that time. We had, heard our songs on the radio with Malcolm Riker, the guy I was talking about before, and mm-hmm. hearing yourself on the radio, somebody introducing you and stuff, it was nothing like it. Hmm. But when we went on that television show, it was so crazy because we watched Headbangers Ball like every weekend. Yeah. And then the next thing we knew, we were sitting across from the guy, you know, and we went, oh my God. I was like, look at his hair, man. Oh my God, this is crazy. <laughs> you know, we were all thinking that. Um, but Keith and I went and, uh, Let's see. I think Patrick and I went on there first on the first time. Okay. We went we went multiple times. Oh, sure. On yeah. there promoting the records and stuff, but um I think we were kind of in um it was kind of surreal. Like we were there sure. talking and and we taped it or whatever and we really didn't think about it and then when we got home and it came on, we were like, "Oh my god, we're on having <laughs> I mean, well, it was just like yeah. we were so overwhelmed with because A&M, we would go to New York and do press days, and it'd be, you know, a whole day of just sitting in a conference room, and they'd, you know, file in a bunch of different rock mm. 
uh, writers and they would ask us about our shows and then they would say, Hey, well, I'm going to come on the road with you and I'll review your live performance or whatever. And so we got to know a few of them and we invited all of them to Memphis. Every time we met somebody, we were like, please come to Memphis and hang out with us. And so we take them and show them around town. And some of those guys we're still friends with. There's, there's mm. guys that we bump into that we just can't believe we've known them as long as we've known them. They're That's just really amazing. Cool. Yeah, and then you guys were on the, uh, this must have been surreal too, is uh, having that song on the Bill and Ted's uh, Excellent Adventure soundtrack, The Dancing yes. with the Gypsy. It was pretty amazing. That song was one of the first four demos that we did to get shot. I think we did yeah. like Love the Bitch and Dancing with the Gypsy, and I think Phantom Rider was one of them. It had, Phantom Rider was kind of the one that was a local, regional song that got on the radio, and it got, it got Malcolm was a friend of, friend of ours and he started playing the song and the phone started lighting up and so he actually put us in rotation on the the radio station like in regular rotation and it became like a top five song in memphis and the guy brian huttenhauer that i was talking about from a&m he flew into town to see us and when he got uh, when he landed he went and got in his rental car and he when he turned the radio on our song was playing and he said, I knew I was going to sign you when I did that. He said, I was determined I was going to figure out how we were going to work together. Yeah. And so we owe a lot to Malcolm. He was playing the song all the time. And so that had been one that, that had kind of got a lot of traction for us. So we, that one was on there. But the Dancing with the Gypsy song was part of our, our uh, master recordings that we're doing to get okay. chopped. And it just so happened when we hooked up with A&M, it was right. The timing was just perfect where they were saying, we're putting together a soundtrack and you're and not on the, grab one of your songs. you're not going to be on the new one though. Cause they're making a new movie. I don't, I haven't heard, heard no, the No, we did. We were laughing about that. <laughs> if we would submit music for that or not. But, yeah. um, man, it was so awesome. I remember when the movie came out, I took a bunch of my friends and we all went to the movie theater to watch it and see if our song showed up in it or whatever. And it's like a super quick scene. It's like maybe 15 seconds or something. Oh, okay. They pull up in a car and we're on the radio oh, that's and it, so cool. they're like, Right up, and they turn the song off and start talking to each other. Yeah. So y'all cheer but, when uh, that, when it comes on the in the in the theater when it came on. Oh yeah, it oh, was so cool. funny. It was it was awesome. But they uh, they were really sweet. It was an A and M soundtrack. So uh, Extreme was on there. Um, I was trying to think of who else was on there. I think uh, Shark Island. There was a few people that were on there. I was trying. I can't remember off the top of my head right now, but. It was just a timing thing, and that one happened to be one that was already done and completed, and it wasn't going to go on the record. So they were like, "Yeah, let's use that one and put it on the." So then, and you guys did a tour. Uh, was this your first big tour? It was with Bonham and the Colt? Uh, Keith was saying that Bonham, Jason Bonham, was one of the nicest guys he's ever met. What What do you remember about that oh, tour? Oh yeah, he was amazing. That was kind of later in the tour. We did. Uh, did you do the LA Dangerous Guns Toys in L.A. Guns? Yeah, was that the first? That one? was amazing. Yeah. That was one of the first big ones, and they were awesome. We kind of clicked with the the Dangerous Toys guys because we kind of had a Southern thing going on. Yeah, that's and then awesome, Tracy yeah. and them. Yeah, I'm still I still talk to Jason. He's crazy, and he still sings his ass off, and he's just he looks yeah. exactly the same. No, I just it's saw like I saw him for the first time uh, this summer, and he was great. And then he came on my podcast. Really nice guy. Oh God, he's nuts. I mean, we had such a good time with each other that. We ended up riding each other's buses 
I mean, it was like herding cats, you know, the tour guides, <laughs> tour managers were trying to find us and stuff. And finally they banned us. They were like, nobody, <laughs> we keep losing y'all. We can't figure out the head count where everybody is. So everybody just stay on your own bus. Let's go. And, uh, but the LA gun guys were so nice, man. They were like really, really, really clicking so, on, uh, it, it was cocked and loaded. Okay. Yeah. That was a great uh, album. Jane. But what, yeah. so what happened? Because I know it's, I find it weird that there's two LA gun versions right now. Cause they split off. They got the drummer and yeah. the bass player in one and the singer and, and guitarist in the other version. Like, was there a lot of fights and disagreements on that tour that you remember? Or did everyone get along then? No, I, I didn't remember that. I think they were really, uh, had a lot of momentum. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We were doing like 2000 seat theaters. We did all the theaters across the country, like wow. the Fox theater and, and uh, uh, I think it was the Fox Theater was down in Atlanta. Hmm. And, uh, but it was beautiful. You would walk in and go, man, am I in the right building? I don't even <laughs> think we're supposed to be in it. It was like, you know, the nice theater from like the 1920s or something. Wow. But uh, the crowds were awesome. They were so good live. They just sounded killer. Tracy was awesome on the guitars every night. And Phil's voice sounded great. I just saw him recently and he sounded really good. Yeah. He sounded really good on him. No, they got a new song out, and it's really good, too. Yeah, I saw that, that Frontiers thing. But um, anyway, they were so nice. They, I think we started in, like, Dayton, Ohio or something. It was really crazy. But they, the tour manager came up and said, everybody needs to meet in the, dress, uh, in the um, hotel bar at 7 o'clock. And so we're, it was our first kind of big tour or whatever. We've been doing clubs and stuff. And so we showed up, and we're like, man, they're probably just going to lay the law down or something, you know, about this, there's show or whatever but what it was is they brought us in and they said man get ready for the best eight weeks of your life (laughs) (laughs) and they threw their glasses up in the air and we just all went crazy we just went oh my god this is gonna be such a good time well yeah Keith said that you know I asked him about when I had him on the your guitarist when I had him on the uh, my show he said I asked him if it was you know your band was kind of like Motley Crue the dirt was was that kind of stuff and he said you guys were like milk and cookies compared to Motley Crue but there must have been some chaos right on this tour with LA Guns and and at that time no we were we were totally just soaking it our eyes were big as saucers man we had never Mm -hmm. done anything like that we we never traveled before we got the record deal so we didn't know anything about being on the road and when we first started out we were just a a little 15 passenger van you know scooting around the country uh leaning mean and trying to get our chops down and all that kind of stuff but they helped really season us man like not only like playing every night and being busy with them on the road but just about being on the road you know about all the people that you run into, all the activities, everybody is just So what did you learn? Chaotic. Man, I think, number one, we got really, really good on our instruments. Mm-hmm. By the time we came back, we toured for two years on that first tour, tour record. Okay. Um, and the thing that you were talking about, we were with LA Guns and Dangerous Toys, and then after the holiday, I think that was 89, and then 90 is when we hooked up with... Uh, Bonham and Nicole, mm. and we were doing Coliseums. I mean, we played the, our hometown Coliseum, the one I was talking about earlier, that we'd seen all the concerts in. Mm. And we got to go stand on the stage and look from the stage out to the audience at Soundcheck, and we are like, oh my God, this is where Van Halen was standing. <laughs> you That's know? crazy. Or this is where I saw ACDC, you know, knock the rafters out of this place. But um, I think what we learned, we just got savvy. I mean, you got, you know, we, of course, we were totally nuts. I mean, we were 20 years old, and we were 
doing what everybody else was doing in college, except we woke up in a different town every morning, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, which was awesome. It was crazy. Um, but I think it taught us about the road. It, it's a lot of work. You know, it's, it is like the fun part of traveling is there, but it's also, you're only uh, there for a limited amount of time and you have to do a lot of, of uh, work. Cause you got to do the sound the checks and everything and get everything ready and, yeah, and back then we were meeting sponsors and the promoters and the record label people back then, you know, radio was a big part of, of you having mm. success. So we would go and meet with the radio people. We'd do a performance on the radio at drive time or during the lunch hour or whatever mm. opportunity we would get. And try to do as many interviews with local papers and you know, I guess it today's equivalent equivalent would be talking to tastemakers and bloggers and podcasters like yourself, you gotcha. know, to get to the right audience. Yeah. But back then we were doing it boots on the ground where it was like, we would target that market and say, okay, man, what do we need to do? What do we have to get accomplished while we're here? And Keith and I were, a lot of times we would go, Keith would play and I'd sing, you know, or something. So we we're kind of like spokesman uh, roles. So we were busy a lot of the day, you know, we would go there and work. And then of course we blew off a lot of steam. You'd play, you know, for 30 or 45 minutes and then you'd have 20 <laughs> hours or something until you had to wake up again and do the start the day over again. So we made the most of that. But I don't know. I think mostly what we learned is we just love being around people. You know, we love hanging out with the fans. We love people would always take us around and show us the cities and how does that cool work? place to eat. Yeah. How does that work back in the day? Because now, you know, there's all these meet and greets. Some of them are free. Some of them are, you know, you got to pay or there's different levels. You get a picture autograph. Um, how did that work back in the day with fans? Did they line up and did some bands come out and meet with them? Did some just stay in their uh, tour buses or how did that work? Man, it was different in every city. I mean, okay. we did a lot of those meet and greet things were a lot more um, organized and everything through the record label and stuff. I mean, I, I know they still are organized like I don't Maybe I'm saying that the wrong way, but we were... Uh, not as much in control of all that stuff. We were kind of okay. disappointed in a direction. You know, okay. we had a tour manager that had our day schedule. He would just click it off. He was like, you know, like the dirt, maybe you were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. He was the guy that he would be the first person you see in the morning. He was the last guy you saw at the end of the night to yeah. just make sure you were going to bed and you knew what you were getting yourself into for the next day. And, uh, we were lucky. We had great tour managers and people that took care of us. And so the meet and greet things were kind of interesting. We, we met a lot of people around, outside the shows back in the day where mm -hmm. we would just walk out and everybody was oh. hanging out, you know, smoking cigarettes or talking or whatever. And we had loved staying. We went, they would always have to drag us out of wherever we were hanging or whatever we were into. Cause we wanted to stay and see everybody. And, uh, we just loved seeing everybody and hearing about their towns and what they were getting into and the bands they were listening to. I mean, we would just sit and talk for hours, huh. had a great time. You know, it was just, I don't know. It was something super organic yeah. about the way we interacted with everybody. I mean, there was definitely a corporate element to it where the record label and stuff organized things for us. But mm. I feel like we kind of connected with our fans in a different way. Like we had people that would bring food to every time we come to the city, they'd wow. show up the bus with food. And they're like, we know you're eating a bunch of junk on the road and we cook <laughs> dinner for you. And, <laughs> we just had really, really cool people, That's man. Very cool. And I tell you what was awesome when we first started traveling. We took a Hertz Pinsky truck that had all of our equipment that the crew guys would drive behind us at night, and uh, 
when we packed it, we packed one of those 55 gallon drums uh, as a barbecue grill in the back of the, the uh, truck. So the first thing all the loaders would see when they opened their truck was this big grill. Oh. And we would throw these grill outs at our hotels. So we'd be at the Holiday Inn or the Hilton or whatever it was. And the record company would get the radio station people. We'd get the contest winners. We would tell some of the fans ahead of time where we were going to be. And we would throw these crazy cookouts. And we were collecting things the whole time. So we had these yard uh, yard candles, these tiki lamps. <laughs> people were showing up with, like, cardboard cutouts. We had this, this girl that she had a battery in her belt that had a hula skirt on it we would turn it on and she was standing over in the corner like shaking her uh little grass skirt at you while we we're cooking out and stuff and it just turned into these like organic cookouts and really we did fun. them all over the country yeah. it was like so awesome the record company loved it they would help us get the um supplies and everything they'd be like you know what i need to go get and we tell them ahead of time and we'd meet them there and set up camp and the other bands join you for this fun. too not a, not that I can rec- I mean, oh, I'm okay. sure if they were at the ho- same hotel with us, they came out. But yeah. a lot of times we were just doing it on the move. We okay. were kind of on the run and we would stop in. But we did a lot of things like that where we interacted with the fans and had fun. And, you know, what about to- um, with this? So then you got in 92, the Wild America album is uh, comes out. It was pushed back because the record label was trying to promote Brian Adams record. Uh, but then it does come yeah. out, and then you guys do a tour with Warrant and Lynch Mob. Um, were you a fan Man, of yeah. Warrant and Janie Lane? Because I'm, I'm a big fan of them. Or what? Would you have any memories of Janie Lane and, and Warrant? Man, they were amazing. They were all super down to earth. Um, I just remember George Lynch rehearsing, like warming up in like the dressing rooms. And back then, we would be at like the uh, basketball arena for you know the University of Tennessee is one of them I can think of where he would be in the area where the showers and stuff were and have his amp in there where mm-hmm. it was reverb, you know, and stuff kind of bouncing around. And God, he would just tear the strings off that thing, just doing his warm ups. He was just amazing. And the the whole band weren't everybody. They just treated us so well. It was, they knew that we were kind of uh, coming back after being away for a minute and they were having a lot of success. They were out on the road. And that wicked sensation song was out. I think when we were with them, it was just, was what Lynch was George guy. Lynch like? Because I've heard mixed stories about him. That he, he was kind of quiet, honestly. Yeah, he okay. was friendly and stuff, but he didn't. I mean, he wasn't like just you know uh, your best buddy or something. But I mean, yeah. he was very friendly when we talked. We okay. were kind of all running around trying to get in stuff, man. You know, yeah. how it was. Was that? <laughs> But that was kind of at that point in uh, the 90s where the, you know, rock was kind of changing. It was turning into the grunge. So was it a hard, did you guys yeah. have, a, was Warren having a hard time selling out uh, theaters at that point or? Maybe, you know, in retrospect, I don't remember it just being like crushing the whole thing. I'm trying to think, I didn't ever hear anything where it was just a total, you know, bomb out thing. Most of the places they went, they had a hard core following on okay. the shows that we were doing but um yeah the grunge thing was interesting because we played some shows with alice and chains right you know yeah. and actually became to know them and uh became friends with them over you know a couple of years where we we're bumping into them and stuff they were recording at a&m some while we were out there and uh but when we played with them we really didn't people ask me all the time they're like man did you like really get upset about the grunge thing and all that but when we were in it 
we just saw them and just thought they were another rock band. Mm-hmm. You know, they were super nice dudes. They were down to earth. We we had a lot of, you know, fun laughs with them and, and had drinks with them and all that kind of stuff. And, um, you Did know, you ever I've see... talked to people and they just yeah. said. Sorry, go on. Well, they just said, you know, if you, if we had bad feelings towards it or whatever, we were like, no, man. I mean, I remember seeing them. They came to Memphis and uh, <laughs> Lane had broke his ankle somehow or another. And uh, he had a cast on, and so mm. they brought him out on a couch, and he <laughs> sat with his leg cocked up. That the whole show, he he wore a big hat, and he had on a pair of shorts, and a a big old, uh, you know, yeah, uh, boot around the bottom of his foot. And uh, but man, his voice was so oh, powerful. Yeah, he no. was just such a great singer. But it's... they were just nice dudes, man. Yeah. They were out busting it on the road. They were hustling. They had some big success we saw them on their club dates and stuff so sure. we saw them before they yeah keith said that, that he hung out with chris cornell because you guys were on the same uh, label and chris cornell was just a really quiet reserved person did did you see any yeah. of the uh because obviously we know the the you know the story with lane and chris um you know both fell to the drug issues did you see that on the road when you played with them did you see them doing like the hardcore drugs and stuff or were they just drinking at that I point i didn't oh, okay no i didn't i mean if they were doing it they probably that kind of stuff was always around, man. I mean, all kind of really things, but we were, I don't know. We just weren't doing that kind of stuff. So what know? happens? Like do we you, were, you ever just walk in and you just see like one of the bands, like people like just literally just shooting up heroin right in front of you or how's that? No, no. I mean, if they did any kind of stuff like that, they were not around Okay, doing that kind of stuff. I never saw any of that stuff. I mean, I, I think the only thing maybe that we would have known about is somebody like maybe, um, in the crew or something, you know, snorting something. Mm. And that would be, and they didn't do it around us. I just happened to see or hear it, you know, just cause I happened to be in the place where they were doing it. Well, right. Cause I, I had uh, Brian Forsyth from kicks and he was telling me like, you know, he got into that drug thing pretty deep for a while. And, and he says, you can kind of, when you get into it, then you can kind of pick up when other people are, 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 you know, if they're high, if they're on, so did you, I mean, just obviously you didn't get into the drugs in terms of doing it, but being around it, did you start to recognize the signs when someone was really screwed, like on Coke or heroin? Man, maybe later, later, you know, later yeah. on. I mean, look, we were having a great time too. I'm not saying we were total innocent people. <laughs> we were doing stuff too, but we just, I really wasn't concerned with it as long as it wasn't affecting you know, what they had going yeah. on and who we were dealing with and hanging around. It, it, it was kind of like, you know, do, do whatever you want to do sure. kind of mentality. But I think the part with me was I got more kind of around any of that kind of activities and, and drugs and all that was when I was home because we would, you know, they say hmm. idle hands, oh. you know, when we were being Memphis, everybody want to see you, everybody wanted to party, everybody wanted to, you know, hang out and be buddies yeah. with you and all that kind of stuff. And, the late night kind of places. Hey, come back to this. Excuse me. Um, <laughs> some like of these late night places were, uh, you know, it was a lot of stuff at, like that going on. It was all over the place in Memphis. Yeah. In the, in the late night. So that's when you, and all that kind of stuff. you end up having more time because the band kind of, it ended around what? 94. Cause I know you had that, you guys had that revolution day album that, is that, do you think yeah. that recording is ever, the official recording will ever come out of that? Because I know the, the label has it. And so you released the demos in 2011, but do you think the, the original masters would ever be released for that one? I, I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think so. 
um, the the way that we we had to just you know shelve it mm-hmm. at the point where we were with A and M, and we were disappointed because we had spent about two years working on that record. Ugh. Like for each one of those records, we had probably written sixty or seventy songs. Yeah, and we were working with Tom Worman, who had done all the Cheap Trick records, and worked with Motley Crue. And yeah, he was in Memphis, um, and we were just it was just that was kind of a dark period for us because we were really frustrated and we really didn't know what to do because the world had changed you know the music industry had changed with um yeah you said that things went from like your phone was ringing off the hook to all of a sudden now nobody calls you back now like you seem like a pretty laid-back guy pretty positive guy stuff doesn't bother you but that's got to hit you kind of hard at that point right you too yeah it did it hit us really hard because i mean we had been like going 90 to nothing for about six years mm-hmm. and all of a sudden we just went into complete stalemate you know just it was a pause and you know in retrospect everything kind of happened like it was supposed to hmm. i think at that time we were we were trying to figure out what we we're gonna do as far as touring and stuff keith had gotten married he was getting ready to have a son and he was like man i kind of really want to pull back for a minute and be with my family for a second he, mm-hmm. he was the first one of us to get married and I think he was having some second thoughts. You know, he was like, I'm not sure if I want to go right now or if we should hold off for a minute. Let me be with my family. And when the A&M thing happened, it was kind of like, hey, man, this was like divine intervention. You want to take a break? And let's just do that. And in my mind, I was thinking, okay, you know, I'm going to go away for a month or something, and then we're going to get back on the road. But it ended up, it was seven years until we got back on stage together. Wow. Yeah. You ended up working a record label and then you went back to school and you got, um, your master's degree. You're and you ended up being a music teacher. Uh, what, what kinds of classes and you still do that, right? What kind of classes do you teach in this music school? Is it, it, you teach singing, songwriting or music business or is it all three or. Yeah. So what happened was after tour tour, I hooked up with another friend of mine in Memphis, Hal McCormick. He was out on the road as a hired gun with survivor, the, oh. uh, the tiger guys. And yeah, um, he kind of looked like Jimmy Page, man. He had this long, curly black hair. He walked out with a pedal board about as, you know, big enough to launch a space shuttle. He had all these pedals and stuff on it. And I'd always been a fan of his. He, he played in a band called Driving South that was from Memphis uh, when he was doing his original stuff. And he and I hooked up. We started talking. We said, hey, let's just write a song. We see each other out. And we said, we've been threatening to do this for the past six years. And I was like, I, I don't, I'm not into anything. I'm just playing local, you know, playing some gigs around town. Let's go get together. And we ended up staying together for about six years, five or six years. We wrote records. Hmm. We played. We had a couple of different lineups. Uh, and it was really fun because it was super different than Keith. Keith was like super heavy and distorted. And Hal was like real clean and had like a bunch of effects and stuff on him. It was bluesy, a little more bluesy kind of sound and stuff. And so I really enjoyed it. We kind of got rootsy. Um, and we had a lot of fun. And while I was working with, with uh, Hal, I ended up bumping into my wife. And we had our first son, and I was traveling with with uh, with Hal out to, uh, we went to Seal Beach in, to do a record out in California. And, man, I don't know what happened. I was, like, on the beach. I had my hmm. guitar in my lap. The wind was blowing. The boats were going by. The sun was out. The sky was blue. But I was sitting there, and I just said, man, my family's not with me. And I just had this really weird feeling. Like I said, man, I think I'm just kind of fried. I think I just need to take a mini break. And so I did that trip 
we did our recordings and that, that's, you know, since come out and all that kind of stuff. This was, man, what is that 20 called? years ago or something. Uh, it, it started out as like a little local thing called uh, Homemade Flavor. And then okay. it ended up, the, the project was Quarter McCormick. You okay. can find it on YouTube and oh. all that kind of stuff. It's really fun. It's really good. And I, I'm still happy that we work together. But um, I kind of, when I went back, I talked to Hal. I said, hey, man, I just need to take a break for a second. I'm, you know, we were kind of just doing some acoustic stuff around town. I was like, I'm cool with that, but I don't want to do any more traveling mm. or anything. And so I was trying to talk to my wife, and we just got to talking about how much the in- entertainment industry had changed. And I said, man, maybe I should update myself. You know, this digital realm is resting on. It's kind of a whole new world. It's not anything I'm familiar with. So I went and got my degrees at the University of, of Memphis. And uh, while I was doing that, uh, John Fry, the guy that owned the studio, and my first manager, Richard Sanders, had written me some letters of recommendation uh, based on my life experience in the industry to help me get into college. I'd left high school as a high school senior to go do the tour tour stuff. Mm. And uh, so they, based on their recommendations and stuff, I got into school. and. Started wait, studying so wait, did and you just, have a high school diploma or a GED or I had a GED okay, when I, yeah. when I went to do the tour tour thing. Uh, Cause I mean, listen, man, I grew up, I'm from the Delta in Mississippi and my family's like Southern Baptist. And I walked in and said, <laughs> I'm running away with a rock and roll band. <laughs> that was, a, that was kind of a heavy conversation, yeah. but they, because they were musical, my mom's side of the family was very musical. Sure. They were really supportive. That's they good. said, man, if this is something you're passionate about, they love music. And they were like, if this is something you want to do. You know, and at the time I just said, man, I really feel like this is something I'm going to miss out on something. And I don't want to regret not taking a chance to go follow this, mm-hmm. you know, just see what happens. And so anyway, later in life, I was 30, you know, and I went back to college. And, but I realized in my mind, I said, man, you know, I had these guys, Richard and John Fry and all that, that were in my life. And I just said, man, I want to be that to somebody else. I want to, mm. you know, I don't have the end all be all experience, but I have some and I have one perspective. And I was like, maybe I could help people that are just entering into the business. Maybe that would be so. And I was thinking about doing entertainment law, you know, maybe or something. And as I was doing my degrees, I was talking to Richard and he said, Hey man, you know, what are you going to do when you get out? And I said, I don't know, man. Should I go be a booking agent? You know, maybe I should go to William Morris or something. And he kind of laughed and he said, well, he goes, man, we have this um, um, training program, executive training program where you go in to RCA records and you can go anywhere in the world that they have an office and you learn operations from the ground up. And it was like a two year program. And so I started weighing that against going to law school. I said, man, I really want to do this. I want to go work at the label to see how everything works. And man, it was like another couple of years of of school. I went in like as an artist and walked into those meetings where they were doing the scheduling. They were having the marketing meetings. They were doing the uh, radio uh, programming meetings. I went to every meeting in the building and man, it blew my mind. I didn't know any of those conversations were going on when I was in Tora Tora. We were Ah. like in survival mode. We were out there making sure we had strings and that we were showing up to the right place. But inside here, I I learned the back end of it. And I learned how important it was to have one champion, one person say, yes, man, I was in a meeting one time and they were talking about an artist didn't have traction. And they said, well, man, we got 15 other dudes behind him. Let's, you know, go ahead, pull the plug on that dude. And I don't know, it was, it was a room full of, I don't know, maybe 15 or 20 people sitting at a conference table. And this one lady raised her hand and said, Hey, 
can I ask y'all something? We believed in this guy. We made a commitment to him. Can we give him two weeks on the charts? His, his single was stalled. And this discussion started. And I was in the corner, you know, just taking some notes or something. And then all of a sudden, it was like 12 angry men. I'm not kidding. Like she said something. And then all of a sudden the PR person goes, you know what? I could go back and visit my so-and-so contacts over it. And the sales guy goes, let me go back to the sales reps. And the radio guy goes, let me make all my guys make one more push at it. And they looked at the CEO and he said, let's do it. And I just thought about it. I said, man, she just saved this guy. Like, because everybody else was scared to say anything. Mm. You know, that was a risky move that if it didn't work, it would probably come back to Hunter, but right. actually it happened. It was okay. The guy survived and it was just crazy. I saw that happen and I was like, wow, this is amazing. And they really thought about the artist and cared about him, And, you know, it made a difference. Huh. And uh, so anyway, that was kind of my switch over into the entertainment business side. And so I worked there and worked at music publishing and man, I just stumbled into teaching. I didn't ever think I'd be a teacher. I, I quit school. I left school. Yeah. I didn't think I would ever be a teacher. But I really had this drive in me to pass on uh, any information that I had if it was somebody excited about being in the music industry. And so I ran into a lot of people in Nashville that had worked at or uh, went to school at um, at Belmont University. And so I applied over there, and I never heard back. And then one day I was working in publishing, and this guy called me out of the blue. And said, hey, man, I've had your resume sitting in my desk for a couple of years. And he said, my daughter is graduating this year and she has something going on the day that I have class. Would you want to teach this class? And it was just the most random phone call. And it was a block from my office where I was on Music Row and Belmont was right up the street. And uh, so and he said, I've been teaching this class for 20 years. He goes, I'll shadow you. You don't have to. I said. I'd love to do it. When does it start? And he said, in like two days. <laughs> wow. And so I said, yes. And I went up there and man, listen, I've played everywhere in the world in front of people. I've played in bars like the Blues Brothers that needed chicken wire <laughs> in front of me where people were throwing stuff and everything. Nothing scared me as bad as walking in that room. Really? My freaking, my knees were knocking. I walked in and looked at this room. It was about 30 kids and their wow. eyes were bigger and as saucers. And they said, we want to be in the music business. You know, they're just looking at me. Wow. And I said, it was a marketing class. It was, I had, at, at, um, when I worked at RCA, I was in artist development and marketing and I'd worked there and, and got some experience for about two years. And then I worked at a Christian rock label that was part of uh, Sony. So I kind of went back to my rock roots. And, uh, so I'd got some insight and I'd been on the inside as, as an executive. And then I had this experience as a singer in a rock band. And so I just took that and brought in real life application in my teaching. I just said, Hey man, you nice. know, I'm going to talk to you about the business side, but I'm going to bring in like some of the creative aspects of this too, that I want to talk to you about. I can relate to y'all that way. And it was just cool. Cause I kind of was in the middle. Yeah. And that's perfect. So I started doing that teaching. And then this opportunity came up at SAE Institute. I was teaching part time and working in publishing. Um, uh, and, and actually working as an independent consultant with a bunch of artists, you know, that had investors and stuff like that. I'd, I'd help them put together their plans and stuff. But um, this SAE thing was a full-time teaching job. And it's a, it's an expedited program. It's, a, it's 15 months long. And I teach everything from survey, which is about roles and companies, so management and attorneys and 
business managers and booking agents and all that to entrepreneurship to, you know, um, social media and marketing to events oh, and touring, okay. you know. So everything. So it just depends on what semester we're in and what class I'm dealing with. But it's really fun because the classes are small. Uh, they don't have to spend a fortune on their education. They can come in and do what they're passionate about. A lot of the people are just musicians and they're just trying to figure out the business side of the entertainment industry. So I talk to them a lot about intellectual property and copyright. You know, when you were asking before about Revolution Day, yeah. you know, who owns the who owns the masters? So that's a good uh, case study in my class to yeah. say, hey, you know, we were little kids. We signed a contract. We're uh, recording these records and we have licensed the rights out to this record company that has the rights to those master recording so unless we have a reversion clause or something like that in there mm. then they have ownership and so or we there, have to negotiate it is there going back to that is is there ways to get those things back because I, I just had the guy from i don't know if you know the band sacred reich but they're like a a thrash metal band and they yeah. have an album yeah. that they can't get the rights to it they're having like the same issue where they just can't get the rights i think you can get it on itunes but they want to get the physical copy so they can you know sell it to their fans and yeah and they can't, they just can't do it. So is it just like, is it, is there any sort of legal way around that? Or is it pretty much the record company owns that there's not much you can do? I think with the revolution day thing, it would have to get licensed out from them. I think they have the ownership. But, and for them, know, it's just somebody, not a priority, right? Because they have bigger. Not out, really. Yeah. I, I wouldn't think so. But I mean, I've had people approach us about wild America, like doing a reissue on that. And I hmm. think even a couple of years ago, there was a company lemon records that went in and, they remastered Wild America, just the one track, oh. and then put put it out, which was kind of cool. And they put it out on vinyl. Um, but eventually, Revolution Day could get you know released on vinyl or something like that. We could go in and do something like that. But hmm. um, it's it's really depends on the contract. So in our contract, if there's a reversion clause, there may be a window of time after mm. a certain amount of years that we could go back and say, can we claim this? You know, yeah. just like you do on a public on a oh. publishing deal or something like that where you get your rights to your songwriting parts back or something. You know? oh. Well, so, and then your yeah. band, your band Tortora, then you guys got back together in 2008. You did the Rocklahoma. That was kind of your first big show back. And now you still do shows and you have two, you basically have two new albums out because Bastards of Beale is only what, like a year or two old. And then you have this new five song acoustic EP unplugged. Yeah. So the Bastards of Beale was amazing. We did it at Sam Phillips studio in Memphis. If your listeners don't know who he is. He found Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis, Roy Orbison, Johnny Cash, Howlin' Wolf. He did all these amazing things. He sold Sun to RCA, uh, the studio, the physical place, and then in the record label. And then he moved down the street and created Sam Phillips Recording. And that's where we went. And so everybody from Bob Dylan to Robert Plant had recorded in this place. And it looks like the 1960s when you go in there. And we did it with Jeff Powell, who was the assistant engineer on Wild America. He was like our age. He's like another family member, made yeah. it super comfortable. He's worked we with in. Stevie Ray Vaughan and B.B. King and Danny oh, yeah. Elfman and all sorts of people. Yeah, yeah. And he's just a great dude. He's super talented. And he said, listen, man, I'm going to make this super easy. And basically, we cut the record live. We just went in. The guys were in the room live. They put me in a vocal booth. And we counted the record off and just started going through the tracks, man. And it was awesome. It was so fun. It was such a cool experience. And, um, you know, we just, we thank Frontiers for giving us an opportunity and a platform to connect with the audience. And we did about 25 shows last year. So we had a ball 
the record has been out since February of 2019. So, um, so a little over a year, yeah, maybe a year and a half. Um, but it was so fun and we were nervous. We didn't know what it was going to sound like. We walked in with a clean slate. We didn't bring in any old ideas or anything rehashed anything. We just said, let's just do all new stuff. And honestly, man, all the people, uh, we had jumped on the monsters of rock cruises and met a bunch of people. And we just got to thinking about all these experiences that we had. We were reconnecting with people we hadn't seen in years and talking and we saw all the bands on there. That really inspired us for the record. You know, they kind of mm-hmm. helped us. We we started thinking about all those, you know, experiences when we were younger and all that, and it inspired a lot of the songs on the record. And so, it's just a, it's a great memory. It's a good way to kind of book in, you know, the tourist stuff. And then this acoustic thing is, man, honestly, we owe it all to that Jim Green, my friend that passed away. Mm. He was actually a promoter on the show. We did it last June seventh, so about a year ago. We went to a little tiny venue in Memphis that holds about 300 people, and we did an acoustic set, and we've never done that. We've always been mm. full-on band. We've never sat down and done anything. Uh, Keith likes to have distortion. He likes to be cranked up. <laughs> and yeah. uh, But we said, you know what? Let's do something that's fun, and we kind of did a deep dive. We went into some yeah. of the records and songs that, that people wouldn't expect. Now, and why is why the deep dive? Why, why not? Because like you didn't do Walk and Shoes, your biggest hit, or, or some of the other hits. It was mostly like more of a deep dive. Why did you? I think it was just some of those just felt better on acoustic. Okay. They felt like they fit the, the mood that we were trying to create. Um, there's a song called Candle in Stone. It was off Revolution Day. We've always wanted to do that one and do it live. And we, we had never done it before. And so that was fun. Um and then we did Son of a Prodigal Son, which was the, the single off the new record. We did that one. Um, but uh, it was just so fun. We wanted to kind of mess around with some that we didn't normally. I mean, they put in a lot of uh, practice time, keeping yeah. them with the arrangements and all that stuff. And uh, it was just fun. You know, we did five songs on this release. And I think maybe eventually we might have like a part two of that at some okay. point. I think it, we're just going to go back and look at them, make sure they're okay as far as our performances and everything. Are you happy sure with the response there. for these last two with the acoustic EP and the Bastards of Beale? The, the Bastards of... Hello? Sorry about that. Oh. Uh, the Bastards of Beale, I'm really happy. We were so nervous because we didn't know what anybody was going to say. We were like, man, does anybody even care if they're doing anything new or do they just want to hear walk and shoes? Or, you know, and we didn't know what it was going to sound like either. We were like, you know, but I just, when the four of us got together and we just walked in and we just hit the cord, you know, in the jam room, we're like, man, that's, that's us, man. That's the tour yeah. sound. We're just going to pick up. We felt like we picked up right where Revolution Day left off, which is really crazy. That was 94, you know, that last record that we were working on. And we let out some previously unreleased, like little demo uh, records that were for Surprise Attack, Wild America, and then the Revolution Day record. That was around 2011, I think. But uh, but the Bastards of Bill, we were really happy. I really think that it was, you know, as a creative person and I don't know, as a creative type, you're kind of your own hardest critic. So, I mean, I could nitpick and pull a bunch of things out and mm. analyze things, but I think I could do better or whatever. But for for the experience and for the, the speed that we did it, we were kind of limited in a couple of ways on that record. Number one, I'm in Nashville and I wanted to do it in, in Memphis 
I said, it's got to be a Memphis record. Mm-hmm. And so it was a time issue and a budget issue. We didn't sure. have a ton of, of money to spend on the record, but it worked out perfect. I mean, we went in, we picked the songs that we liked, um, and we did it just like we did in the old days. We took an old uh, cardboard piece of paper, stuck it on the wall, listed <laughs> the songs out, and checked it off, man. Yeah. Just like we did when we were little kids. It was so fun. That's we would cool. go and rehearse it at our drummer's house. He's got like a you know, a rehearsal space for his drums, and we went over there. And we just you know, bashed it out, man. We went in, and we sat down, and we went through the parts. And Jeff came over and ran through the arrangements with us, and we got like a little skeleton of our uh, sequence in our arrangements and we went in the studio and just it was so cool we did basic tracks together because um, we did everything in about I think it was eight days eight or nine days so I would just run down there on the weekends and turn around I had to come back to teach you know yeah yeah um, it's different but yeah. um it was a different approach but Keith and I went in and and I sang and he did solos and stuff and the coolest thing of all was in this in the building at Sam Phillips. It's this three story building. So the first floor are the two studios. The second floor used to be their distribution center. It's got like this red shag carpet, these weird lights and stuff. This big kind of storage room. We shot part of the Prodigal Son video in that room, and I'm talking about when you watch it, you'll see it's got red carpet and stuff. And then uh, the third floor is all the offices, and you're not allowed to take any pictures or anything up there. It's Sam's office. The door's always shut, and there's a bar that was off the side of his office on that floor that's decorated like 1950s, you know, and so they, you could go up there and catch a drink or something and hang out, and it was just this cool vibe, cool atmosphere, but I went down to sing, and it was the only weekend I had to go. My children were getting ready to start school, and I was taking my son to college and stuff, and I said, man, I got to do it this weekend. And we were planning, you know, our calendars and everything. Well, the weekend that I wanted to come, this really famous uh, Stax soul singer wanted the studio. Mm. And um, can you say who it was? I or? was like, what? Am, uh, oh, I'm drawing a blank. Hang on a second. Um, it's uh, you don't miss your water till the water runs dry. Hang on. Um, Give me just a second. I just had his <laughs> name on the tip of my tongue. I know him. I'm trying to think of who it is. Uh, his name just went off. Uh, oh, William Bell. Sorry. Okay. I was like thinking of Al Bell, the guy that ran the studio. His name's William Bell. Man, he's like 80 years old, but he wow. sings. It's like going to church, man. His voice is still. So I walked in, and I could hear the B3 organ and the guitars playing, and it just put chill bumps all over me right now, telling him. It was just so good. It was like going to church, man. But anyway, they told me, they said he wants it. And I said, well, I don't care. And they said, well, we're going to send the tracks to Nashville and you can sing up there. And I said, no, I want to come to Memphis. I don't want this to be cut in Nashville. And I said, just, you know, let's just figure it out when I get down there. And uh, I walked in and they took me up the steps. They said, we want to show you something. And so I thought we were going to this distribution room or whatever. And the next thing I know, they turned the second set of steps. And I looked up and... Sam Phillips' office is open and my microphone is sitting in there. And I was like, oh my God. And I go, you're going to sing your record in Sam's office. <laughs> and I walked in. I couldn't believe it, man. His desk is still set up and the chairs are these white leather chairs and each one of them has a stand-up ashtray next to it like from the 70s. Um, and his, his desk 
when you look at it, it's like the world's first iPod. It's, it's a desk <laughs> and it's got a, uh, it's got a jukebox built in it. Huh. And so wow. he used to load 45s in it and he would sit there and make phone calls and try to sell his records. And so Jeff had all of his equipment set up on his desk and they had me out in the middle of the room. It's that red shack carpet again. And then right behind me was this box TV. It was, it was from like the fifties or something. It was standing on some legs up off the ground. It was, heavy as lead you know but yeah. the front of it had a drawer and the drawer was pulled out and it had a Roy Orbison record sitting on it and I just looked down and I said oh my god man I'm in Sam Phillips office and Keith sat in there with me I sang the whole record I sang five songs one day and five songs the next day and then I drove home about 10 o'clock at night and that was it that was the wow. record it was done does that have the but same acoustics so in that office I mean is, is it meant for recording though or no Oh, it was fine. I mean, it was the the room was just to get the performance, and they you know could fix oh, okay. everything in the mixes and all that yeah. stuff. Add the stuff that we needed, but yeah, it was fine. I mean, Jeff had all the stuff on his laptop. I mean, it was set up. I could put any kind of effects, and everybody does everything in a box now, anyway. But yeah, you've worked with some other. Um... Uh, you've collaborated, I guess I should say, with with some some great people. Stan Lynch from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, the drummer. You co-wrote a couple songs with him and Taylor Rhodes and um, the Memphis yeah. Horns. You had a, you had an interesting story about um, the Memphis Horns that I heard you tell. That when you first started working with them, they were telling you about uh, segregation that they had to deal with that. Oh yeah, growing up in the in the South, that it sounds kind of like that movie Green Book where they would. They would drive yeah. from town to town, and there were some places they, they were scared to pull over and get something to eat because they thought they'd get killed. Exactly. Yeah. It was just like, we felt like we had known them our whole life, right? We met them. They were just so cool. And it was funny. It was during the Wild America record, but I ended up, I stayed friends with Wayne until he passed away. He actually moved up here to Nashville, and I, I saw him up here when I was working in music publishing and stuff. He was living uh, out kind of near my office. But, um, they were just great, and they had been around. They had probably played on 300 number one records by the time we met them. But Wayne was just the kind of guy that was just like, hey, man, I'm a dude from Arkansas. I grew up in a cotton field. You know, I'm just the average Joe Joe, and would just play it down. Like, he didn't play with Elvis or Sting or Robert Cray or all these, you know, Wilson Pickett songs and all that stuff. Otis Redding, they played on, you know, everything from Dock of the Bay to yeah. Al Green records. I mean, think about all those things you listened to growing up. That's them on those records, man. It's That's, just crazy. crazy. He was really funny. When I was dating some girls, when I knew him, he would say, why don't you come over for dinner? And I mean, he would make me look like a mean look. I mean, <laughs> I was a little kid, you know, and trying to make a good impression on somebody. And he would invite me over and you'd walk in, there was gold records everywhere. And he'd get his trumpet out at the end of the night and kind of tap around on it a little bit. Tommy, you got it, man. You got this. Do you, hello? Hey, man, if I got you. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, you broke up a little bit there. But yeah, so you were... That's okay. Yeah, you were... But So do you hear a lot of those kinds of stories like that, he, that they were telling about the segregation? Because um, I know there's... I know I don't like to get political on my podcast, but I mean, I feel like the racism thing is just like... It's not even a political issue. It's more like a social thing. What is it like growing up in the South? I mean, you've spent your whole... Pretty much your whole life down there in the South. Is there is racism still... I mean, have you seen it? Things change over your lifetime or do you... What do you, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, it's just I feel like you can't get away from that in the news right now. Man, yeah, this is that's a hard question because to me, I I was in the music industry. Mm -hmm. You don't really think of 
racism. Like I'm inspired by people. I love them and hug them and see them and think about it. And you just don't think of it that way. Where I grew up in Mississippi, especially when I was young in the seventies and you know, that era, there was definitely a lot of heritage and things that, um, I don't know from a, from a social standpoint, I felt like that it wasn't really moving forward. People were hanging on to some things that were, you know, you, you don't want to treat people different. You don't want social injustice going on. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and you could feel that, you know, growing up. But I think what happened to me is I moved around the country a lot. My dad worked for an airline. And so we left maybe when I was going into middle school, I'd probably done elementary school in the South. And then I moved away to South Dakota and then to Houston, Texas, and then down and back into the Southern uh, area of Mississippi but those moves and stuff introduced me to so many different cultures, different mm -hmm. ways of thinking, even just moving from the South up to the North, you know, we yeah. moved like 3000 miles away from home and it was a whole different mindset in groups of people. But, um, man, I just, I don't want to be political on your podcast, either, but <laughs> this is kind of what I think is that I, I think that the world is very hungry for, for us to be unified and for solidarity yeah. and, they're hungry for that. Nice? And I think yeah. it just needs love, man. Yeah. I'm serious. No. I know this sounds cheesy and like I'm trying to be a hippie or something. No. But <laughs> no, honestly, that's, that's what serious. I want. Yeah. I think people are hurting and, and they're reaching out. And the, the, the actions that we're seeing, the protests and all that thing, are people that need their voices need to be heard. And it's, it's really important for us, especially from my standpoint, as my children are going to inherit what we've created. Right. True. And, and I, I have three boys. They're, they're 15, 17 and 19. And I just think about what kind of experience they're having through all this from the pandemic to all the protests. Mm -hmm. to, you know, my, my middle son, he's a graduated this year. He didn't do prom. He didn't have graduation. He's going to college. Hopefully if they let him come to uh, the campuses and stuff mm -hmm. and where he will be leaving, you know, home for the first time. But as far as from a cultural standpoint is we've always tried to pass along uh, the mentality that you uh, treat everybody equal. You know, mm -hmm. I think I think from a musical standpoint, I mean, I, there was one of one of my dear friends that was on Bill Street was a guy named James Govan. And he was a soul singer. You know, he was about big around as a matchstick. He wore a little captain's hat. He threw beads out in the audience. And he just always had women around him all the time. He'd have a booth. There'd be five or six of them crawling all over him. You know, and I just thought he was the coolest dude in the world. And, you know, we didn't think about race. We were talking about music. We were like, I was telling him how much I loved him singing, you know, mm -hmm. the uh, sets that he was doing, the songs he'd picked, the horn player he just picked up. And, you know, and I think we were kind of, mentored kind of the people that were around us like John Fry talked to you about he worked with Stax he worked with Al Bell yeah and I think they were there supporting each other and saying hey this is something amazing when we get all this diversity in the room together look what happens look at the songs that transcends mm -hmm. time and those songs are timeless the things yeah. that they've created the different perspectives the different cultures and I and we saw it in the Memphis Horns when we were with them Wayne and Andrew were totally different I mean they couldn't mm -hmm. have been physically any different. Wayne was short, little white guy, and, and Andrew was a big old tall black guy. 
but they traveled the whole world together mm. and they talked to us about their experiences. We laughed and loved them so much. Mm. And, uh, you know, there's definitely from a historical perspective, there's definitely things that uh, about growing up in the South that there's parts of your heritage that you're not proud of. Sure. And, and that's hurtful. And, uh, but hopefully we can be united and talk. Yeah. I think that's the hard part is people are just are uncomfortable about talking about it to each other. Yeah, no. But it's really, as cheesy as it sounds, it's just, this is about human beings, man. Yeah. This is us, and we're only here for a little while together. I mean, life is, right. and maybe it's because I'm older and I'm kind of <laughs> in a reflective mode, yeah. you know, or something, but you realize how quickly it goes by. Absolutely. No, and I'm... just how insane it is to think of the place we are right now in it society is, is just yeah. No, it's definitely crazy. a crazy place. And um, again, I don't like to talk politics. Like I, don't, I don't like to divide people. But what you're saying about bringing people together, I mean, that's kind of what I try to do with, I think, music. I think Tora Tora, I mean, I think Tora Tora has fans of probably all different people from all different kinds of background. I mean, you, you've toured oh, the, man. Yeah, all we the do. country we and the world. From and, yeah. All over the world. And it's so amazing. But listen, that's the one thing about music. It's a universal language. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a community. It's a culture. Um it gives you a sense of belonging, man. This is the most loyal fans of people that love music, depending on whatever genre you're in. Um, and yeah. it's just amazing. It's such a powerful force. Yeah. I mean, I can't even tell you on the phone how much it's affected my life, man. There's nothing in the world that's affected me like that. Well, and that's um, what's so cool is that you can, you can, you can share that not only with your band and your music, but also now, I mean, if you're a teacher, you're obviously influencing young people as well with, and helping them yeah. you know, influence. So it's it really is cool. Fun. Now, what I get so excited. Yeah. For them. Now, what else? I always like to end with a, a charity. So I don't know if you had, that's another thing I like to do. You talked about being cheesy. Well, I'm real cheesy because I always end with a, a charity that the artist is passionate about. Is there something that a charity that you work with or something that you're passionate about? Yeah. Well, right now it's something that I'm, I'm really so happy that I got part of is um the rocket recipes for autism oh i haven't heard of that one i don't know if you've seen it it's no. a it's a volume one book it's got people from ozzy osbourne white snake quiet riot stone sour warrant poison great white queen's right skid row toto dockin nova rex and everybody submitted recipes oh. yeah so it's online that you can go to and find it um there was a friend of mine that reached out to me that was putting this together and his name is Kenny Wilkerson. And if you guys would like to find it, I'm trying to find, uh, it's www.rockinrecipesforautism.com. Okay. You can go there and order the book. Awesome. It's for a great cause. Uh, we wanted to raise, uh, awareness for autism. Um, and anytime that we can be a part of anything that's, charitable we would definitely we've worked a lot with st jude and oh. um over the years out of memphis there's somebody that's really close to our heart um and the ronald mcdonald house of course that helps the children that are in the hospital that gives their families places to stay so but uh this rocking uh recipes for autism was something kenny approached me about and so i, I put in the southern recipe it's round steak and gravy so you guys will have to go check oh, it out. Okay. Yeah. Great. That sounds great. Well, yeah, you've done some amazing things. You tour the world and played with some of the biggest bands and you've had five videos on MTV. I mean, is there anything else that you have uh, lined up for the future? I mean, I know it's gotta be tough doing concerts with the coronavirus going on, but yeah, 
Well, we're still, um, I'm doing some live streams right now. Okay. Uh, there have been Sunday sessions that are, you can find me on Facebook during that, where I want to stay in touch with you. I just did the Monsters of Rock live stream out of Cincinnati. So that was an hour set of some of the songs. You know, I pulled out some I'd never done before, so I was excited about that. But we're working on new material, uh, working on a new record, and then we'll keep the the EP going. Uh, we're going to be promoting that through the end of the year. So okay, you guys just keep keep in touch with me. I'd love to update you, man. When we get in the studio or something, maybe we can do another conversation. Okay, sounds good. Yeah, I appreciate it. Well, awesome. thanks for coming on well, my listen, show. Take care of yourself. It was great talking to you. you. Too. I appreciate the op. All right, you Talk too. Talk to All you right. later. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, there you have it. Anthony Corr, singer of Tora Tora. What an amazing career. Uh, what a great band. Check out uh, all their back catalog um, and check out the new album, Bastards of Beale, and their new acoustic EP, Tora Tora Unplugged. Uh, and definitely follow Anthony on Instagram and social media. And the band is on social media as well. They have a website, of course, uh, and follow them for updates. It sounds like there might be a part two to their acoustic EP. Um, So check that for updates. You can follow me on social media as well. I hope you enjoyed this episode. My goal is always to entertain, educate, and inspire. So I hope that you learned something. I hope it was entertaining. And maybe even got a little bit inspired to do something. Go out there, make a change in the world, uh, make a change in yourself. Maybe you want to be a musician or a teacher or uh, lots of things that Anthony did that were inspiring. So I think good talk with him. What a great guy. Thank you for listening. Um, If you like this, share it with a friend or hit the subscribe button so you don't miss any more episodes. Until then, shoot for the moon and have a great day or night.